Last week, uh, Joe Biden and Xi Jinping shook hands. That was the first time they had done that since Biden became president. It was a significant moment, uh, particularly in the light of the bombshell that President Biden had dropped just uh, a couple of weeks before. In October, uh, he unilaterally cut China's access to to high-end computer chips. It's a very big deal. Chips, they're they're the new oil, crucial to everything from smartphones to to armed drones. Their production is very centralised. It's controlled by just a handful of companies around the world. So Biden's move... Well, it's been described as nothing less than the launch of an economic war. Chris Miller uh, is an Associate Professor of International History at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. He has written uh, a very timely book, a new book called Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. Uh, It's on the New York Times bestseller list and he joins us now. Chris, welcome. Thank you for having me. You describe chips, uh, the world's most critical technology. Why so ubiquitous? Why so important? Well, the typical person doesn't actually ever see a computer chip unless they open up their smartphone or PC. But in fact, we rely on them for almost all aspects of our daily lives. And it's not just smartphones or computers or data centers, but also dishwashers and microwaves. A new automobile could have dozens, in some cases, even hundreds of chips inside. So today, almost anything with an on-off switch has semiconductors in them. And the average person will touch hundreds just going about their daily life. What are they? What do they do in the computing process? So a chip is a piece of silicon in most cases that has millions or in some cases billions of tiny transistors carved into them. And a transistor is an electric circuit that turns on or off. If it's on, it's a one. If it's off, it's a zero. And this provides all of the ones and zeros that undergird all computing, all software, uh, any email we send or picture on uh, on our phones, all of these are just vast strings of ones and zeros that are in turn just circuits that are either on or off on a silicon chip. So if you go to the Apple store, for example, and buy it a new so iPhone, simple. <laughs> but in, in fact, it's so it's it's so complex because of the numbers involved. To so just give you an example, if you buy a, a new smartphone, it'll have fifteen billion uh, transistors carved into its most advanced chip. Wow. And and are they the direct descendant of of, of the transistor radio of sort of post-war fame? That's right. It's the exact uh, same technology. Uh, Now it's just vastly smaller because uh, a transistor and a transistor uh, radio could be so large it would be visible, whereas one of the 15 billion transistors on your smartphone is so small that they're the size of a coronavirus. And so our ability to manufacture these is uh, it requires some of the most complex and precise manufacturing processes ever used in human history. And what's the development arc of this technology? I mean, this is this is still recent. That's right. The first chip was uh, invented just over 60 years ago. And the initial use case for trying to miniaturize computing power in this manner was to put it on the nose of a missile. 
it was Cold War uh, arms races that provided the initial funding uh, for semiconductor development, both in Silicon Valley and at the time in the Soviet Union. And there's been a deep interconnection since that point between defense needs and the most advanced computing technologies. And that origin story takes us to a little firm called Fairchild Semiconductor. And where were they? They were founded in Silicon Valley in the late 1950s, but today they've uh, long since gone out of business. But the mm. individuals who founded them, Gordon Moore and Robert Noyce, went on to found Intel, which is today one of the world's largest chip makers and the largest in the United States. And they set Silicon Valley on the path towards being the center of the world's tech industry. At the time, of course, it wasn't called Silicon Valley. It was only named that in 1971 after it became the world's uh, center of manufacturing silicon chips. So you, you mentioned there the, the, the defense uh, side of this. And of course, it's it's the Cold War that really kickstarts the development of this technology and the, and, the, and the tension between the US and the Soviet Union. That's right. That's right. There wouldn't have been a chip industry as we know it were it not for the need to produce more advanced and more accurate missiles. The first major order for semiconductors, just to give you an example, was for the guidance computer on the Apollo spacecraft that took astronauts to the moon. The second major order was for the guidance computer on an intercontinental ballistic missile designed to deliver nuclear warheads from the United States to the Soviet Union. And so this interconnection between defense needs and, uh, and semiconductors has been there since the beginning. And I mean, give us a sense of of how this develops, because that 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 semiconductor, let's say, used in the Apollo program, its size, its capacity compared to the one that I'm, well, the, the many of them that I'm holding in my hand now in this phone. What's the comparison between those two? So the first chip that you could buy commercially in the early 1960s would have had four transistors on it, letting it calculate either four ones or zeros at a time whereas any new smartphone will have at least 10 billion transistors on it, uh, in some cases uh, far more than that. Okay, so we're still in the Cold War, uh, and, and, and America sort of brings in uh, Asian countries here but, but wants to maintain a lead over this, this sort of production process, particularly in Japan. What, what happens there? The, the U.S. made it part of Cold War strategy to try to integrate Asian countries, partly by making them centers of chip assembly and production. And so starting in Japan and later turning to South Korea and Taiwan, the U.S. actively encouraged the construction of international supply chains where chips were designed or produced in Silicon Valley, but then assembled in Japan and then later elsewhere in Southeast Asia. And this was an effort not only to find the cheapest places to assemble chips, but also to bind these countries to the U.S.-led system, making sure that uh, they didn't change their geopolitical orientations. And so all of the supply chains that we rely on that crisscross the Asia-Pacific region today and supply the electronics that we depend on emerged from that era. And it was partly a deliberate strategy by the U.S. government, partly a deliberate strategy by the companies involved to uh, make these supply chains uh, deep and uh, extraordinarily interdependent, uh, increasing the extent to which Asia relied on the U.S. and the U.S. relied on Asia. And, and that that's still the balance as, as we stand here now? 
Well, it's still a very Asia-Pacific focused supply chain. But in the past, countries like Taiwan or South Korea played pretty low value roles in the production of chips, whereas today they have unique manufacturing capabilities that no other countries can match. And when it comes to Taiwan, uh, just that one island produces 90% of the world's most advanced processor chips. And the biggest company in Taiwan, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, has production capabilities that no one else in the world can match. So it's still a trans-Pacific supply chain, but the role of Taiwan, South Korea, Japan is far more important than it was several decades ago. But that number for Taiwan again? 90% of the world's most advanced processor chips. Okay, so we now begin to see you know, that, that, that here is an element that's perhaps often unacknowledged of, of Taiwan's great significance uh, in terms of not only the supply chain, but the, you know the, this, this fundamental component in everything that makes the world work, it comes from Taiwan. Yep, that, that's absolutely right. And if you buy a new iPhone, you'll find etched on the back of it, it'll say, designed in California, assembled in China. And that is one of the great uh, lies of modern electronics, because in fact, the key processor chip inside of every iPhone can only be produced in Taiwan, not in the US, not in China, nowhere else in the world except at TSMC's facilities in Taiwan. So there's a, a certain eye on the part of Apple there for uh, political sensitivities, you, <laughs> you could say. <laughs> Well, in hindsight, it was an extraordinary error to end up in a situation where the world's most vulnerable political dispute is also the center of the world's digital economy. But that's where we find ourselves today. Just to give another data point, Taiwan produces over one-third of the new computing power the world adds each year. So this makes Taiwan incredibly desired. You know, the, the influence in Taiwan is is fundamental to economic success globally. I mean, that that's what it comes to, is it not? That's right, and it also means that if Taiwan's production capacities were cut off, or its ability to export chips were cut off, the yeah. impact on the global economy would be measured in the many trillions of dollars. How, how does this industry come to be so centralized? I mean, it, it begins in Silicon Valley, it ends in Taipei. Why does that happen? The process of building billions and billions of transistors on ships, each of which is the size of a virus, requires the most complex and specialized machinery and software and materials really ever produced. So the machine tools needed to make chips are some of the most complex machine tools ever made. The software that's used to design chips is ultra-specialized. And so across the, the 2,000 or so manufacturing steps needed to make advanced chips, there are a number of different firms that have unique capabilities in the world. So for example, if you look at the software tools to design chips, there are really only three companies that can do it, all based in the U.S. If you look at the machine tools needed to make chips, you need to buy tools from five companies, three American, one Japanese, one from the Netherlands. And Taiwanese firms are the most uh, capable of any in the world in using these tools and software to actually fabricate the most advanced chips. And it's been this way because the process is so complicated and because it's so expensive. And if you look at the facilities that TSMC has produced in Taiwan, its most advanced factory is the most advanced factory in all of human history. And the economies of scale needed to produce uh, at this quantity and this precision are such that we've got 
monopolistic tendencies across the production process, which leads to these choke points in the supply chain. Is, is this a, an opportunity that, that, that Taiwan identified and seized? I mean, to, to develop that capacity uh, must surely have been a, a thing of, of, of great determined insight. It certainly was a deliberate strategy by the Taiwanese to inject themselves into the electronics supply chain and make themselves indispensable for the world's computer industry. I think even they've been surprised by the level of their success in becoming central. But if you look today, for example, at Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen, she argues that Taiwan's not only economically important, but also that its economic importance will defend it uh, in terms of its Mm. relations with China. She refers to this as a silicon shield uh, vis-a-vis Beijing. This is where you know, recent history is instructive because the, 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 the chains in which we depended, the, the way in which the system worked globally was interrupted, of course, through the pandemic. What did we learn then? Well, the pandemic really brought home the extent to which chips weren't simply a question of smartphones or PCs. They were a question of all manufactured goods. And if you just mm. look, for example, at the auto industry, Delays to their ability to purchase ships caused an estimated $200 billion just in auto delays alone, setting aside all of the other impacts. So it it really underscored the extent to which disruptions to chip supply uh, could cause many hundred billions of dollars of damage to the world economy. And that shows what's at stake in case something goes wrong in the Taiwan Straits. Because the semiconductor shortages of the last two years weren't actually driven by a decrease in the number of chips. In fact, the world produced more chips in 2020 and then even more chips in 2021 than it had previously. But demand shot up even faster. And so supply was insufficient to meet rising demand. But if you envision something going wrong in Taiwan and the world having one-third less computing power than it expected, yes, results would be catastrophic. That's cataclysmic. That increase in demand, is that... Is that because of increasing capacity or just increasing number of things into which this technology is being introduced? Yeah, that, that's the reason. There are more and more types of goods that are requiring chips and types of goods like automobiles, for example, that used to have a relatively small number of pretty unsophisticated chips inside now have lots of advanced chips. And if you think forward to where autos will be in 10 years' time, they're going to have course. more automated driving features, better entertainment, better communications. All that means, more chips. China must be itching to become a self-sufficient chip producer. Well, today, China spends as much money importing chips as it spends importing oil. So there's no greater vulnerability for China in terms of economics or in terms of politics. And that's why since 2014, Xi Jinping has made semiconductors a priority of his drive to domesticate key technologies But the reality is that China is still heavily reliant not only on imported chips from Taiwan or South Korea, but also imported chip-making equipment in China's own chip facilities from the U.S., from Japan, from the Netherlands and other countries. I I can hear the the, the sound for listeners of of pennies dropping (laughs) across the country as as they realise the the true nature of the tension between China and, and, and Taiwan. This is... Yes, it's about history. Yes, it's about territory. But this is a fundamental economic strand to that tension. And it's not just economic. It's also about military power. Because just Mm. as Mm. autos and dishwashers and coffee makers will have more chips and more computing power in them in 10 years' time, 
so too will military systems. And this gets back to where we started the conversation in the early Cold War, because then as now, it's defense planners who are thinking as much as anyone about semiconductors. And so imagine, for example, what it takes to have a semi-autonomous drone flying through contested airspace. You need ultra uh, complex computing power to let it make decisions on its own. You need all sorts of sensors, LIDAR, radar, infrared, all of which require advanced semiconductors to manage and process the data. So the future of warfare will be all about applying computing power to military systems, which means it will be about applying the most advanced semiconductors to military systems. So with all of that, with the stakes that high, then we have the US president basically cutting off China's access to high-end computer chips. That is a bold stroke. Well, the US gamble is that this is the best chance the US has to reverse the deterioration of its military position vis-a-vis China in East Asia and in the Taiwan Straits in particular. And if you think from the perspective of the Pentagon, it's abundantly clear that China is going to produce more ships, more planes, more missiles, more drones. So China's going to win in terms of quantity. The only hope the US has is to win in terms of quality. And ask yourself then, what quality advantages does the US plausibly have over China? And over the past half century, it's been computing power has transformed the US military, made it the world's most advanced. And the US is betting that this time, just like in the past, the US will be more capable of applying advanced computing, advanced sensors, advanced communication to its military systems. And because China remains somewhat far behind in semiconductor technology, and the US is willing to cut them off from the most advanced chips, the Pentagon's betting that in 10 years, it will be able to deploy new types of computing to defense systems well in advance of China's ability to do so. I wonder if the, if the Ukraine conflict has been salutary in, in, in demonstrating how that disconnect in technology appears on the ground in actual warfare. Well, it, it certainly has in two different ways. One is that it's shown the extent to which the Russian military has been fundamentally relying on imported chips. And if you look at the many great open source studies that have been done on Russian missiles that have fallen on Ukrainian territory, when they break apart the guidance computers, they found American, South Korean, Japanese, Taiwanese chips inside. So it's been our chips that have been powering the Russian military. Now that's changing because export controls have been tightened. But the same thing is true with China. It's been our chips and the computing that our chips make possible that's been uh, making, uh, enabling many of the advances of the Chinese military. And so restraining China's ability to access computing power produced abroad is going to be a key determinant in the future military balance. I guess the, the potential downside here, Chris, of this, this bold stroke of Biden's is that, that China perhaps feels the increasing necessity of, of territorial, territorial acquisition uh, in Taiwan, if perhaps that's their only path forward. Well, it is a risk that a move like this does incite China to act sooner than it otherwise might. Um, but there's also risks on the other side of the equation of letting the military balance continue to swing in China's direction, as it has for mm. every year of the past three decades. And I think the Biden administration looked at both sides of that ledger and bet that the optimal strategy was to act now rather than to wait until it might be too late to arrest the rise of China's military power. Chris, thank you. Extraordinary. <laughs> what a what a... A great and, and from you coherent glimpse into an e- e- extraordinary universe and the one in which we live. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
Chris Miller, uh, Associate Professor of International History at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. And his book, compelling compulsory reading, Chip War, uh, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology, that's published by Simon & Schuster.